So this is the the time in our gathering when we turn our attention to the preached word of God, which is meant to affect our heads, our hearts, um, and our hands. And so uh, we really believe that uh, uh, taking an honest look at the scriptures of God can really um, change your life. Um, So today, like I said earlier, we are beginning a new series called Cross and Crown, really looking at um, the gospel of Mark. And first you might be thinking, well, who's this Mark guy? Like, who is Mark? Um, he was also known as John Mark, and he was a, uh, a co-laborer with both Paul and Peter, who you might be more familiar with, the Apostle Paul and uh, Peter. And so what Mark did is he collected the eyewitness account from um, Peter. He gathered all of these, these stories and, and wrote them down, and he put them together and shaped this account that we have today called the Gospel of Mark. And what was he trying to do? The purpose of the Gospel of Mark is to answer the question, who is Jesus? Is Jesus and, and to also ask the question, is Jesus the long-awaited-for Messiah King? You see, this Messiah was this royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, um, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. At the time of Jesus, uh, if you remember, Israel is occupied by the Roman um, Empire. And so under this, uh, this tyranny and this oppression, there was this longing in the hearts of all the Jews for someone to come and deliver them out of this oppression. There was this idea that he would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and really set up and establish a free Jerusalem. But we know from history that Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans, did he? In fact, he was killed by them. And this brings us to the very issues that Mark is trying to get at in this book. And so if I can kind of set up and frame what we're going to be doing over the next several months, uh, between now and Advent, uh, we're going to be looking at the first half of the book of Mark, which really focuses on the crown of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus do all sorts of things, see what kind of authority he has. We're going to see what kind of power he has. We're going to see who this Jesus is. And it's really action-oriented. You know, Mark doesn't have a whole lot of, of these long, extended teaching times. It's like immediately Jesus went and did this. And the very next thing is, then Jesus went and did this. It's like Mark is saying, I want you to see Jesus um, and these episodes of his life and kind of determine for yourselves who he is. And then after uh, the new year, we're going to die for many. And we're going to see the disciples start to really wrestle with, what does that mean for you that you're going to have to suffer? And we're going to spend the next um, several chapters looking at Jesus really in the last week of his life as he's heading towards Jerusalem to go uh, be hung on the cross. These aren't random stories that are thrown together, that that Mark has a purpose. He's designed and crafted these stories so that we can really know who Jesus is. So as as we begin, let me pray and ask God to help us see Jesus in our text today. So Father, thank you uh, for um, each and every person in this room. God, I thank you that you have spoken, that you've given us your word, and that if we would um, humble ourselves and pause, that we really can know you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us um, as we hear the text preached today, whatever, whatever distractions we might bring into the room today, whatever baggage that we might bring because we're, we're in a church, whatever the case may be, God, that we would uh, uh, stop for a moment and listen in and take an honest look at um, your word. Help me, Lord, get out of the way. I am just a broken vessel trying to hold out living water that we can all um, take a drink. And so, God, you're welcome here. Help us to see your son Jesus today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Harvey, Irma, 
No, I don't have to explain what those mean. Like everyone is shaking their head. Right now there's a whole world of thoughts and images and news coverage flooding into your mind. Like I don't have to do that because those names right now carry such significance. And maybe for you, you have friends and family down uh, in the Houston, Louisiana, personal. Because you're not, you're not just 2,000 miles away because people that you know and love are there. So you almost feel it right there with them. And it's moments like this in our nation's history when, you know, this is the first time like two Category 4 hurricanes have swept through kind of back to back. That it's, it's really stopped the, the, the nation and really the focus has been down on um, the southeast. And as soon as I say those names, you're thinking of devastation. Like nobody's going, I think I'll name my next kid Harvey or maybe Irma. Those are great names. Like, I bet you if you look at the names list, those names are going to drop way down probably for the next 50 years, right? Because we just can't conceive of the idea that you would name your child after something of such kind of devastation. Feel bad for people named Harvey and Irma right now, right? And as news of Harvey started to come in, people had to choose whether or not they were going to believe the reports, right? So in our, in our modern day, you've got these, uh, the, uh, the weather people who um, are, are saying, man, these things are coming. You can see them on the radar. And everybody was faced with this decision. As the news came in, it wasn't like they could do anything about it, right? You can't stop a hurricane. It doesn't matter what you feel about that news. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter if you go, well, no, you know, we all get to decide truth for ourselves. No, the hurricane is coming. All you get to do is choose how you respond. And so for some, they decided, no, we're going to stay. I think we can do it. We've survived hurricanes before. We're going to board it up. We're going to put up the sandbags, and we're going to endure through this. Other people said, no, not this time. They got in the minivan, packed it all up, and went north. For those of us here who were uh, thousands of miles away, we were kind of watching with Ian of what would happen. Born and raised in Houston, I watched this news with special attention because my parents are still down there. And my parents were some of those who decided to stay and ride the storm out. And I remember that night getting almost no sleep as pictures kept coming in of the water creeping up to the house that I grew up in. By God's grace, fortunately, it got right up to the threshold and held and never um, crossed over. But it was a long night waiting for updates, going, man, has it crossed over? You know, they were in this place of trying to save up battery because uh, if they had to, to, to uh, go on the roof, they needed to have cell phone coverage to try to get help. And so it was a really long night. You see, they couldn't stop the hurricane. All they could do was respond. Man, if you think about the numbers, like 27 trillion gallons in, in, uh, have been dumped on um, Texas and Louisiana in a matter of six days. A record-breaking 51 inches of rain. There's an estimated $150 billion of losses. 72,000 people were rescued. 30,000 people are, are currently taking refuge in temporary shelters. It's estimated that over 450,000 people will ask FEMA for disaster relief. And I'm just talking about Harvey. I haven't even gotten into the numbers of Irma. You see, news is fundamentally a report of what has happened. It's like breaking. There's really, there's nothing you can do. It's happening. All we get to do is choose how to respond. News is not advice or commentary. It's stating something that is a matter of fact. And you either accept it and reject it, or uh, 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 you know, if, if you believe it to be true, and then you respond accordingly. 
And when we come face to face with news like this, it demands our response. And there's consequences for how we choose to respond. And I know it gets hard sometimes because we live in a world of fake news, right? Where it's kind of hard to know like what is uh, a subjective opinion or what is objective fact. But regardless, we all have to kind of sift through the noise and decide what is true and what is not and how we are going to respond. In our passage today, in Mark chapter 1, we are faced with news that demands a response. You see, Mark has written a gospel account for us. It's not written as myth. It's not written as, uh, as story. It's really written as news. He is claiming this to be an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ. You see, fundamentally, the gospel of Mark is not advice. Now, there is advice on how to live, but fundamentally, he is reporting news of something that's happened. He is saying there is something that has been done for us, and we today will be faced with a decision of response. And so how will we respond in light of this good news? And so to kind of frame our time, we'll, we'll move through three movements today. The first is we'll see is that the gospel is news, not advice. The second thing we're going to see is that the gospel is something that's been done for us. And the last thing we'll see is that the gospel is something we must respond to. So let's uh, jump into our text uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We'll have the words um, on the screen, or you can follow along in the Bibles uh, near you. So look what Mark says. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this first verse in Mark is like a prologue. It's an introduction. Okay, let's get honest for a second. How many of you skip right over prologues and introductions when you read a book? It's okay. It's a safe place, right? Okay. Um, please don't do that. They're really important. They like set the stage for the book. Often you'll have the most clear outline of the thesis, the author's intended purpose right there. If anything, it's like one of the most important things to read. The author is saying, here's why it's important. Here's what I'm going to try to do in the rest of the book. And it actually becomes almost like this roadmap for how to understand everything that follows. That's what this verse is. It's like the only place in Mark where he's going to go, here's what I'm trying to do. And so every single word of this is really packed and pregnant with meaning. So we're going to look at each one. The first is the beginning. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you might be thinking there's another book that begins in the beginning. It's the book of Genesis. It's the, it's the creation story of how all this came to be. Why is there something rather than nothing? The very first line of the whole Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's that memory of, this, of, of, the, of the old beginning. And that maybe Mark is saying, hey, with, the, with, with Jesus coming, there is a new beginning. The second word is gospel. Now, you might be thinking, okay, how do you know that this whole thing is news? It's this word right here. The very word itself means good news. If you take the word that's in the original Greek, that's, that's what it means. Um, it means good news. And in fact, it was a technical term. So Christians didn't invent this word. If you were living in the Roman Empire at that time, um, there would be these, these, these good news, these, these messages of victory that would go out. And so what would happen is um, if there was a new emperor born, it would be good news. Hey, don't worry, a new emperor has been born. There's going to be a furthering of the Roman Empire. Or if they had a military victory, they had defeated the barbarians, you could know good news. They will not invade us. Rome has protected us, and they've secured victory. You can live in light of that peace. 
And so when someone would receive a gospel, this good news, they would know it was something that happened. That it wasn't uh, propaganda about what you should do. It was saying, this is what has happened. Now you choose to respond accordingly. And see, gospel is not merely daily news. It's not like just the regular mundane, it's going to be sunny today, uh, there's going to probably be a, 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 you know, something going on over here, some baseball game. No, it was like, like life-shattering, life-altering news. It was something that you could really build your life around. It's an announcement of something that's happened in history. It's an announcement about something that's been done for you. They achieved the victory. You didn't have to go and do it. And now you get to live in light of it. A gospel represents it is news. You see, the reason I, I keep saying it's news, not advice, is because we have this tendency to reduce the gospel to good advice, kind of like Christian self-help. We almost reduce Jesus to this like ancient Jewish Oprah who created the original Super Soul Sunday to help you live the life of your dreams. Or maybe we look at Jesus like a humbler version of Tony Robbins, and he's like our life coach. Or maybe uh, you, 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 when you think of Jesus, you're like, he's like the first TED Talk superstar with ideas worth spreading. But that's not fundamentally who Jesus is. You see, advice is counsel about something you should do, right? Saying, hey, I think you should do this. You should maybe change this, make some different um, uh, decisions about your life. And don't get me wrong. There, are, uh, there is advice in the Bible about how one should live. But for, before you can get to the advice, though, you have to ask yourself, do I believe the news? Am I willing to shape my life around it? Because if you're not willing to shape your life around it, the advice doesn't make any sense whatsoever. News is a report about something that's happened, right? Just like Harvey, you can't do, some, you can't do anything about it. All you can do is respond and this really sets Christianity apart from every other religion. You see, it's news. And the essence of other religions is advice. Here's what happens. Other religions say this. This is what you have to do to connect to God forever. And so it kind of lays out this path. If you'll do this, then you kind of make that benchmark, and then you do this. And if you follow this plan, at the very end, you get the prize. You get God, or you get enlightenment, or you get uh, whatever it is that, uh, that, that that religion says happens at the end of your life. But the Christian gospel starts in a fundamentally different place. It says something has happened in history. It's news. Something has been done for you. This is how Jesus lived and died in order to earn the way to God for you. It's not this thing that you earn to get to God. Christianity bases everything on what Jesus has done for us in history. And that makes it different than in every other religion. We'll come back to this idea of, of how we respond um, at the end. But first and foremost, I want us to start rethinking what Christianity, what faith in God actually is. It's first and foremost, the gospel is good news. And we are presented with the, with, with the reality of going, do I believe that news? Do I believe it to be true? Am I willing to bank and build my life from there? Okay, we'll get to more of how we respond. Is the name Jesus probably a familiar name to most of you? His name actually means God is salvation. Like his very name is God is salvation. So what we're seeing right here is what is this good news? It's that God is salvation. He has actually uh, uh, provided and, and and paved the way for um, our salvation. In fact, when Joseph 
who was Jesus' stepdad, was, uh, was confronted by the angel, they told him what his name was going to be. Right? Joseph didn't come up with his name. The angel said, you're going to call him Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. The next word up here is Christ. That's not his last name. Okay? Christ is a title. It's this title that was filled with meaning. Anybody um, around that time would have known um, that the word Christ meant Messiah. And this word has all kinds of freight with it, right? This was this long-awaited one that would come. And he doesn't want them to miss that Jesus, he is, his name means God of salvation. And if you're wondering, he is the Messiah. He is the one that is going to deliver us out of uh, our, our, our oppression. It's a title. It was the one for the long-awaited king. And then the last phrase, the Son of God. Mark doesn't want you to miss that he is saying Jesus is God's Son. He is divine. And so right from the beginning, he wants you to keep all of this in mind. It's meant to be the lens through which you see the Scripture. In the same way that I'm looking through these lenses right now in order to see the words on my screen, this is the lens that Mark wants us to have as we walk through this book, that it's, it's, it's news. He's saying these things actually happened. And there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a need for us to respond to them. And the good news is that Jesus is salvation, and he has provided the way for us. This kind of news is life-shaping. Those who believe it will live by it and will be um, shaped by it. It's meant to be life-altering news that you build your life around. And so I encourage you, as we walk through the rest, we're going to move much more quickly through the rest of our verses, but as we walk through uh, the rest of our time today, and I invite you to keep coming back and hearing more about Jesus, that you would do so uh, with faith that seeks to understand. And so maybe you have doubts. Maybe uh, you're a bit skeptical. Maybe, maybe you got burned by the church. Maybe you've got some, some baggage there where um, even being here today is kind of a step of faith. Um, God meets us in, in these vulnerable places, um, and we, can, we, uh, we want to be a church that is a safe place for you to rethink your life um, in light of the gospel. But, my friend, it, it doesn't happen if we come with our guard completely up um, where we're trying to find validation for our unbelief. You track what, what I mean by that? If, you are, if you're at a place where you go, I don't want to believe, I don't want to hear what you have to say, um, then you're going to find everything you can in order to support that, uh, that belief. But if you come with, a, with honest questions and go, I don't really know exactly how it all fits together, but I want to know. I really believe that God will meet you um, in that place and help you understand. And so if I could restate and kind of summarize this first verse, it would be like this. This is the good life-shaping news of the victory of Jesus Christ, God's promised king. And Mark wants you to have that in mind as you see everything else um, today. So if I could summarize what we've just said, the gospel is news, it's not advice. It's a direct declaration about something that's been done. So now let's look at what has been done for us. And we'll move much more quickly um, through these sections. So look with me at Mark chapter one, verse two. He says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. 
So this next section that we're going to walk through has several really quick moving parts. And that's kind of how Mark is written. It's very kind of action-paced. He's he's very, uh, there's a lot of of verbs in this, okay? And so we're going to see a couple things that are happening. The first is what what we just read is actually what's called prophecy. So what that means is it was written a long time ago, hundreds of years before uh, this moment in um, history. And it's been um, uh, 400 years so imagine this, like we don't like to wait five minutes, right? It's like if, if, you hit, if you go to uh, click on an internet browser and that page takes more than like two seconds to load, you're like throwing up your hands, like what's wrong with this internet? You know what I mean? Like we just don't like to wait for anything. The Israelites have been waiting for 400 years to know what was God's next step in his plan of salvation. 400 years of going, how long, oh Lord? That kind of silence is deafening. Like, I've been silent for five seconds. You're like, please talk. I feel awkward. Right? They've been waiting for 400 years for God to speak. And right now we're seeing the first voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now, to understand the, uh, this and the weight of it, we have to understand the background of these people. You see, it's a, uh, your, your history forms kind of this background to understand. It's been difficult to understand what it means to be American without the American Revolution. Like, think about how many times, like, when we think about our history, we think about our nation, we think about what's happening, how this is kind of like our shared story of how this nation came to be. And for the Israelites, it's a thing called the Exodus, so maybe if maybe you've, anyone here have seen the Charlton Heston movie, Ten Commandments, okay, right? That one, pretty popular, or they did a remake uh, not too long ago, Exodus of Gods and Kings, which was not very good. Um, anyway, it's this, this story of the Israelites' history, right? They've been enslaved in, in under the heavy hand of Egypt for over 400 years, and they're crying out for deliverance. And so God raises up Moses, remember him? Moses to save the people and deliver them out of, uh, out of Egypt. And so... He, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, who are you? Why would I let them go? Uh, this is my free labor. I'm not just going to give them up. And so what happens next is wave after wave after wave of, of plagues, things that are meant to humble and bring Pharaoh down to realize, okay, I'm not God. This God who, uh, who, who Moses represents is mightier and more powerful than me. I need to let them go. But over and over and over again, Pharaoh hardens his heart and will not let the people go. Finally, after a last devastating plague with the death of the firstborn son, um, Pharaoh says, get out of here. I don't want any more of this destruction um, in my land. And as they're leaving Egypt, they're, they're, uh, everyone is just like throwing them money and gold and clothing and saying, man, just get out. Of, we don't want any more of this um, in our land. Well, they don't, they don't get very far down the road when what happens? Pharaoh realizes, wait a second, I just let all my free labor go. And he says, no, 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 we're going to go back and we're going to get them. And so there's this like, uh, this, this, this tent come to the face of the Red Sea and there's this barrier and they can't really go around it in, in any direction. And barreling down on their back is Pharaoh and his army set to destroy them. Right, and if you remember from the movie, what happens? Moses, he throws up his, his staff, the sea splits open and they're able to walk across dry land. And when they get to the other side, when they've crossed over from the land of slavery into the land of freedom, the ocean crashes back over and obliterates their enemies. And it becomes this 
picture of not, I mean, they're literally saved in that moment, but it becomes this, this picture, this metaphor of how God goes before them to be their warrior, to achieve victory for them. You see, it's news about something that's happened, and God fought their battles for them. Now, what happens after that is they walk around in the wilderness on their way to this land of promise that God is going to give them. And that's going to be important because in a minute here, um, uh, as we just read, uh, there's this voice of one crying um, out in um, the wilderness. And when they get to the wilderness, it's this moment. They have this opportunity to go, are we going to trust that the same God who delivered us out of this land of slavery, that he will actually take care of us in the wilderness? We have to realize about the, the, uh, the Jewish wilderness is this is not like a place of like, uh, trees and, and uh, deer where there's like you know, flowing brooks. It's a desert. There's no food and there's no water in the wilderness. And so they've just been delivered out of slavery. And the question is, will God take care of us in a place where there's no water and there's no food? And it's testing their faith. What we actually find in the pages of, of history of Scripture is that they fail. They start to complain. They don't trust God. In fact, they start saying things like, we just want to go back to slavery. We just want to go back to Egypt. At least we had little pots of meat while we were there. Like, they've got this opportunity to connect to the living God, and they want to go back to spam. Like, that's, that's, how, that's how much they distrusted God in that moment. And so when Moses goes up to um, hear from God on how they're supposed to live, while he's up there, they create this golden calf, this idol. And what they're basically saying is, we want a God that we can see and that we can touch and that we can control. And I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like my own heart. I create all kinds of things that I, uh, to worship and to build my life around. Instead of building around God, things that my, like I'm building my own little kingdom. The Israelites were, but they failed. And so another generation comes, and eventually God raises up uh, Moses' successor, Joshua, and he leads them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And so that's kind of like their background, their history. And so what happens here in this passage is it takes place in the wilderness. And this is not merely circumstantial or incidental. Have you ever felt like you are living in a land of promise, but it feels more like the wilderness? Right, like we're in one of the richest, most abundant um, countries in the entire world. We're like, I mean, you may not feel it, but like everyone in this room is in like the richest 1% in light of the, the, the population of the entire world. And many times we can be in the land of promise, but feel like we're in the wilderness. There's this great interview um, on 60 Minutes uh, where they had Tom Brady, goat, right? Like, it's not even an argument. He's the best, Right? He's got five Super Bowl wins. He's healthy. I think he's faster at 40 than he was at like 18. I mean, he's just the epitome of like uh, of, of, uh, of, of, of an athlete, right? He's got a beautiful family, supermodel wife. Yet despite all his success and fame, in this 60 Minutes interview from several years ago, you know, the, the guy's just like, like listing all of his accolades, listing everything out. And Brady looks at him and he says these words, and I quote, there has to be more than this. Why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. And I think, this is still Brady, that there has to be more than this. 
this isn't it. This can't be all that it's cracked up to be. And so the interviewer there is just going like, like every guy would die to be you right now. And you're saying this isn't all it's cracked up to be? And so the interviewer looks at Brady and goes, well, if this isn't it, what is it, right? It's like the obvious question. If this isn't it, what is it? And Brady looks at him and he goes, man, I wish I knew. And it's this like heartbreaking moment because both of them are just going, yeah, I don't know. I wish I'd been there. It's like that perfect moment to be like, hey, it's Jesus, man. That's what you're missing. You have built your life around something that can't hold the weight that you feel like it should. That's what this news is all about. Everyone in this room, if we're honest, has these moments of clarity where you feel like you're in a land of promise, but it doesn't feel like promise. It feels much more like a wilderness. The reality is, is nothing gets better on its own. We need God to intervene and to step in. Let's look at these next couple of verses in chapter four, or chapter one, verses four through eight. So it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it says that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And it says, John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Mark says that the one, we just read there's one in the wilderness crying out. Mark says that person is John, and he's the one who's going to prepare the way for God to show up out of the wilderness. So Mark has now just said that John is the messenger and that the very next person who's going to show up, right, is God. I'm out in the wilderness. I'm crying out. Make way for the Lord. He is coming. And so John is out in the Jordan River baptizing people. And like I said earlier, baptism is this symbol. It's, it's, it's this outward symbol of an inner reality. And, he's in, and, it, and it pictures this idea of washing and cleansing. That's why it's in water. And so what's happening is people are getting ready for God to show up. And so when you, when you expect God to show up, what would you do, right? If like God was coming over for dinner, what would you do? You'd, like tie, you'd feel like this need to tidy up and clean. And, and so people are going, man, if God is showing up, like I want to confess and get right with him. You see, that might seem odd to us, but if you take God seriously and you really believe he's coming, then you do. You want to kind of get right with him. So this idea of repentance that John is talking about is really, really important. So let me define repentance for you. Here's how I define it. It's a complete redirection in your life for the purpose of reconciliation. At the very heart of repentance is this idea that I am right here. I'm going to turn away from something in order to turn towards something. In repentance, we're turning away from the kingdoms and the things that we're building our life around, not just to go like do my own thing, but for the purpose of being reconciled to God. It's a complete redirection of your life for the purpose of reconciliation. You see, when we, can, when we confess our sins and repent, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that, be, that begins in the mind. So often, like people, oh, how does that work? It begins in the mind. You start to, 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 to hear new things. You start to hear the gospel, and you go, wait a minute. Like, I'm being confronted with, with this, this other truth. And it starts to shape your mind. You go, okay, maybe all my life isn't what's cracked up to be. In the, in, the, in the quiet moments of the soul, 
when, when you're just sitting there, maybe laying in bed at night and you're thinking, man, maybe there's something more out there. That process kind of begins in the mind. And then it starts to work its way down into the heart where you start to desire new things. And you go, man, I don't, I don't want this life anymore. And then it turns into the, to the hands, becomes physical, where you literally start to make decisions and act differently. This is repentance. You turn around and move towards something else for the purpose of reconciliation. And so John is saying, everyone get ready because God is coming. So let's look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. So remember, John is this messenger. He's pointed to God. Who shows up next? It's Jesus. The very next person. John was saying, there's someone coming. He's God. He's going to save us. The very next person we see is Jesus. You see, John is making this connection that God is showing up in the person of Jesus Christ. And in this baptism, we have kind of like really the inauguration of Jesus and his ministry. Like when we think about inaugurations, we think about the presidential inaugurations that happen every four years, right? These things are expensive. Did you know that? They cost an upwards of $200 million. And that's not just our current president. If you adjust for inflation, every single president all the way back to the first have these elaborate parties because we're celebrating something big. This new president, this new administration, it's the beginning of something new. Jesus would want to come with like, he's the king of the world, that he would come with all this pomp and circumstance. Maybe you would expect Jesus to show up in Rome itself, right? He's going to be the one that conquers and brings deliverance for the people. You might expect Jesus to show up in Rome, but he doesn't. You might expect, okay, Jesus is going to show up in Jerusalem, right? That's the capital of Israel. It's the place where everything's going to happen. Jesus is going to show up on the scene in Israel. But where does Jesus show up? Out in the wilderness, and the muddy waters of the Jordan River, getting baptized by a guy wearing a three-piece camel suit who eats bugs. That's not a very impressive inauguration. You see, this king is different. This king is willing to lay down his life. He doesn't need the pomp and circumstance. This king is different. What everyone else got into the water confessing sin. Jesus doesn't get in the water and confess sin because they didn't have any sin to confess. And what happens when he gets in the water is that the heavens open up. God the Father speaks down to God the Son and says, I am well pleased with you. And you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the water like a dove. Remember I told you this should make us think about the creation story? In the very beginning, it says that God the Father spoke through God the Son and that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. What Mark is saying is there is a new creation coming. What went wrong in the old creation, now God is renewing and redeeming. Where the first creation failed, where the first Adam failed, where our first parent failed, God will not fail. What happens next is that uh, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He actually relives the story of the Israelites. He, he goes out there for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember, I told you in the wilderness, there's no food, there's no water. He goes out there to essentially go through all the trials and all the temptations that we face. He is tempted with control. He is like, like Jesus, why, with, with, uh, for, I mean, with comfort. Jesus, why don't you just, as Satan is tempting him, why don't you just um, say the word and turn these stones into bread? Like, you know you could do that. You have the power to do that. Why don't you just take a bit of comfort? 
where he says, why don't you bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, all the power that you could ever want could be yours. I'll give it to you right now. Jesus is faced with the exact same temptations that we are faced with. But in every way where we fail, Jesus doesn't. And like I said, this is Jesus doing something for us. What he's doing is living out day after day this perfect life of righteousness so that he can give that life of righteousness done for you. Every other religion says you've got to earn your way to God. What the gospel says, why it's good news, is that God has earned that way for you. He has lived the life you couldn't live so that he can give that life to us. Jesus is securing the victory for us. Have you ever felt like you didn't uh, measure up? Have you ever felt like you missed the mark? Have you ever felt after uh, a long season, just like the weight of, like, almost like the weight of the world is on your shoulders because you feel like you just can't do it all? I don't know about you, but I feel that way all the time. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life you couldn't live so that he could give us that perfect life of righteousness. Then he comes up to you and he takes that guilt, he takes that weight off of your shoulders and puts it right on his back because only he is strong enough to, to carry it to the cross where it will be dealt with forever, where we can be finally and forever set free. All right, last couple of verses and we're gonna get out of here. It says this, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That word time there is meant to give us a sense of urgency. The time is fulfilled. It is right now. You see, we, begin our, we began our time with the very first words, the beginning of the gospel, this news of God. And it ends right here with Jesus saying these last words, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, we talked about this as news. We're first confronted with, do I believe this? Did this really happen? We've got, everybody is faced with that decision of, did, do I really believe that this happened? And we go, what has happened? Jesus has lived the life that we couldn't live to give us the life uh, that we could never achieve for us, that he has achieved the victory in our place. It's not something you have to earn. It's not something you have to achieve. It's not by being better or being good. It's about connecting to God himself because of what he has already done for you. And at this very end, we're, we're faced with what is our appropriate response? And Jesus says, the response is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repentance, remember I said, it's a redirection of your life for the purpose of reconciliation. That all of us live with this longing that we've been disconnected from God himself. And God is so merciful and so loving that if we will turn away from the little kingdoms that we're building, turn away from our sin and turn to God that he will have to do. He has initiated. He's laid all the groundwork. All we have to do is respond so let me pray that we would do that.